Hey guys, this is another recorded episode, and you can find the original on Patreon for only $1 a month, or if you aren't interested, you can support me in the podcast. I don't have much news or anything, so let's just get started right away. According to Psychology Today, the term family annihilator refers to the head of the household who kills their entire family, even pets, and then sometimes themselves after. Experts in criminal behavior say these family annihilators often think that in murdering their whole household actually spares the family from tragedy or indignity. Some may become delusional and believe that their actions will spare the family from a horrible event, such as satanic forces or signs from God. Most of the time, the horrible events usually are rooted in financial issues, and from several cases I have listened to on other podcasts, the head of the household can't keep a job, or they gamble, or spend their money recklessly, resulting in financial loss. In their utter embarrassment and sense of failure, their warped sense of reality kicks in and they annihilate the whole family, thinking they're saving them from future struggles. The annihilator usually has some serious mental health problems going on, which does not in any way excuse their actions, but let's just keep that in mind. John Liss was born in May City, Michigan on September 17, 1925 to German-American parents John Frederick List and Barbara Florence List. Growing up, John's family was Lutheran and raised him to be the same. John's family was very religious and his dad was the Sunday school teacher. Later on in his life, he would become a Sunday school teacher as well. John later served in the U.S. Army during World War II as a second lieutenant in Korea. He was discharged in 1946 and went and got a bachelor's degree in business administration and a master's in accounting from the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Right after graduating with his degree, in 1951, John met a woman named Helen Taylor. So Helen was born on January 1st, 1925 and grew up in Greensboro, North Carolina. And according to Death Sentence, the inside story of the John List murders, Helen's sister Jean stated Helen was a physically abused child and was desperate to get away from home. Helen dropped out of school at 16 to marry Marvin Taylor, a 23-year-old soldier. Together they had a child named Brenda in 1942. Unfortunately, during Brenda's birth, Ether was accidentally sprayed into Helen's right eye, which made her vision permanently impaired. And I'm not sure how ether would be sprayed in somebody's eye during birth, so if you have any insight, please let me know. After World War II, they moved to Alabama where they had another child named Kenneth. Unfortunately, the baby died six months later and Helen had many more miscarriages over the years after. The family then moved to Korea, where Helen became extremely sick from hepatitis, which was an epidemic in Korea at the time. Helen and Brenda moved back to the U.S. and Marvin stayed in Korea. According to Death Sentence in 1951, Helen learned that Marvin was killed in action during the war. And according to that same book on October 13th, Helen and her sister Jean went bullying with a man named Ted and John. So John Liss, uh, like we talked about earlier, he tried to talk to Jean first but realized she was married. Ted and Helen immediately hit it off and went on several more dates before Helen learned that Ted was married. So John immediately swooped in with Helen. And mind you, this all happened like six months after Marvin died. Everything was extremely fresh. And despite this, Helen and John began their relationship very quickly. Back then, another society norm was to get married and then have kids, and it was considered a huge scandal to have a baby out of wedlock. Being a widower with a child on top of everything didn't help the situation. So they got married on December 1st, 1951, eight months after Helen's late husband had died, and two months after Helen and John met. Once married, 
Helen revealed that she was not at the slightest bit pregnant, and because John was the devout Lutheran he was, he did not divorce Helen. And when Helen and John began dating, Helen may have also passed syphilis onto John, which might explain why she lied to him about the pregnancy. In the first four years of their marriage, John and Helen had three children, Patricia in 1955, John in 1956, and Frederick in 1958. John and his family attended church every Sunday while John taught Sunday school, just like he had during his childhood. He was particularly interested in teaching Brenda religious instructions, and during this time, John was an audit supervisor for a Kalamazoo paper company. According to Death Sentence, Helen belonged to three different book clubs, and from the outside looking in, the List family was perfect. But alas, they were not. In 1951, the family dynamic was very different from today, as most of everyone knows by now, but I will give a refresher. After World War II, the women who took over factory jobs as men went to war were suddenly expected to go back to society norms, and many did. America wanted to go back to the family rules before the war, and women were expected to stay home, keep the house clean, cook, and watch the kids. The income usually came solely from the husband. Well, John took this rule very seriously, especially because he was a very successful accountant and had a huge mansion to pay for, but I am getting ahead of myself. Because they were seen as devout Christians, Helen began to pull back. She didn't necessarily like devoting all of her time to religion, and it was exhaustive for constantly taking care of the kids. Helen began to sleep in on Sundays and miss church more often. Brenda also began to sleep late on Sundays as well, and John would have to get the kids ready and take them to church by himself. Eventually, Brenda stopped going to church and John would leave with the youngest kids. After having their last child, Frederick, in 1958, Helen began to self-medicate with alcohol even though she was taking prescription tranquilizers. And you see, Helen had postpartum and was not receiving treatment for syphilis, so she began to experience blackouts, vision issues, and instability. Brenda, now 16, also was threatening to run away from home. Helen also didn't seem to pay so much attention to Frederick, according to a neighbor's account in the book Death Sentence. In 1960, Brenda married and left the family, and John moved the rest of the family to Rochester, New York to take a job with Xerox. There, John eventually became director of accounting services. So John wasn't doing so great either, and kind of didn't help Helen with her mental and physical illnesses. According to the book Death Sentence, John was bummed that he had to take care of the kids himself and cook dinner. If you're a parent, you're going to have to do these things yourself because sometimes your partner needs a break. But like I said earlier, this was not the family dynamic back then. Anyways, John was also having trouble at his job and his co-workers and bosses found John to be very difficult to work with as well as very off-putting. In 1965, John took a job as vice president and comptroller for a bank in Jersey City, New Jersey, and moved the family into a 19-room Victorian mansion titled Breeze Knoll in Westfield, New Jersey. And this is the mansion I mentioned briefly earlier. John's mother, Alma, moved in with the family as well. During this big move, Helen was experiencing symptoms from syphilis and stopped going to church altogether. Helen was also a big spender, according to the book Death Sentence, and her actions were not sitting well with John. Usually in healthy marriages, you can just talk to your partner, but obviously John wasn't a healthy individual, as we'll soon realize. What also didn't sit well with John was the fact that his teenagers acted like teenagers in the 60s. 16-year-old Patricia wanted to be an actress, and there were rumors that she was also dabbling in marijuana, which is obviously like a teenage trope and come on like 
you could have handled it better. John also felt that actresses were corrupt and linked to Satan, which I'm like, do you ever watch movies, John? And if you watch a movie, they're actresses and actors. Are you linked to Satan as well for watching these movies with these satanic actresses? According to the book Death Sentence, John once had to pick up Patricia from the police station after police found her and her friend walking the streets at night smoking cigarettes. John had felt for years that his kids weren't behaving how he wanted them to, so poor John. More tragedy struck for John when he lost his banking job in 1971 at 46. He lost his job because he was acting very weird at work and unprofessional. Instead of speaking to his family about it, John was pretending like everything was normal. He eventually got another job which paid less, but it was still a job. Because John was a weird man, he quickly lost that one as well. He was too proud to go on welfare, and he didn't want to ask anyone for help, so John decided to go to the train station and wait around all day reading newspapers and looking really lame. Everyone believed John still went to work, but alas, he was not. Secretly, to pay for bills and keep up appearances, John took money from his own mother, Alma's account. John was bankrupt, paying for an expensive house and for five people. And he did all of this because he didn't want to be seen as a failure in the community, as he says later on, and he didn't want to violate his father's teachings by receiving handouts, which is very toxic. That's a very toxic thing to teach your child. So John was out of options and money. He looked around in his quote-unquote ruined life and came to one conclusion. He needed to take care of his family. On November 9th, 1971, John sent the kids to school, like every other normal day. John then proceeded to grab a gun, walk into the room where Helen was drinking her morning coffee, and shot her in the back of the head. Helen was only 46 years old. John immediately headed for his mother's apartment upstairs, where he shot her above her left eye. She was only 84 years old. Alma was too heavy for John to move her to the ballroom, as he says later on, so he just left her there in her bed and threw a towel over her face. Really respectful, John. John then placed Helen's body in a sleeping bag and dragged her into the ballroom, where he covered her body with a bath towel and her face with a kitchen towel. Later, 16-year-old Patricia called home to tell John she was sick and asked him if he could pick her up. John picked her up and then drove him home. I read in several different accounts that Patricia walked into the house and then he shot her. There are other accounts where he picked her up from school. So I'm going off of the information I found from the book. John hurried into the house and waited for Patricia. When she walked from the laundry room to the kitchen, John shot her in the back of the head and dragged her body to the ballroom next to Helen. With three dead bodies in his house, John waited for the children to come home. He stopped all their mail and newspaper deliveries and went to the bank to cash out the rest of Alma's money and close her in John's account. That's really suspicious. 13-year-old Frederick learned of Patricia's illness and phoned John to pick him up from work. I also read in other sources that he just came home. So when they arrived at the house, John again hurried inside and waited for Frederick to come inside. John shot and killed Frederick with one shot and his body was also dragged into the ballroom. I've read from several sources that John Jr. had a soccer game where John went and cheered him on. And I also saw some other sources that said John Jr. came home early from soccer practice because of bad weather. But I think I'm going to go with the first scenario because the most sources said that. John decided to eat a sandwich after killing Frederick and then drove to his 15-year-old son John Jr.'s soccer game. John sat in the bleachers, cheered his son on, and then drove John home, all the while knowing full well that the whole family was dead in their home. 
As soon as they walked into the door, John shot John Jr. in the chest and face after a huge struggle and dragged him into the ballroom with the rest of the family. John straightened the family members out and laid them next to each other and placed towels over their heads and knelt down and prayed for them. That night, John turned down the air conditioning in the house, turned all of the lights on, and played religious music. John also called his pastor and told him that John's family was on their way to North Carolina. He contacted the children's teachers and Helen's friends that the family was leaving to go take care of a sick relative there. John cleaned up, washed the dishes, and went to bed. The next morning, he wrote a detailed five-page confession to his pastor about what he did to his family and then proceeded to skip town. He drove to the John F. Kennedy Airport and parked his car before catching a bus into New York City, where he boarded a train to Denver, Colorado. A month went by before anyone figured out what happened to the List family, and by then, John literally had disappeared. Patricia's drama teacher, El Liano, was phoned by John. His assistant picked up instead of Ed and later relayed the information to him. Ed thought this was weird that Patricia would miss so many rehearsals, especially when she was so dedicated to learning lines for a streetcar named Desire. Her friends thought it was weird that she wasn't trying to get in touch with anyone, which was normal for her when she went out of town. Ed went by the house to look around many times and eventually contacted the police. The police couldn't do anything without probable cause to walk in. So during this month, the neighbors thought the lights being on constantly was worrisome and called the police for a welfare check on the family. The police came and left quickly, saying there wasn't anything wrong. A couple of days later, on December 7th, 1971, Patricia's drama teacher, Ed, decided to investigate the List house once and for all. And while he and another teacher tried to look into the windows, the neighbors got suspicious of the seemingly random people walking around the home and called the police. The neighbors also told police that the lights were constantly on in the house, even at night, and if that wasn't creepy enough, the lights were also beginning to burn out one by one. The police arrive and the teachers, neighbor, and police are all curious about the List family and their whereabouts, so they all went inside the house, essentially, where they found the partially decomposed bodies of Alma, Helen, Patricia, Frederick, and John Jr. Police found John's confession that detailed the murders and his stupid reasoning behind them which included not having a job, his children being teenagers, and his wife not being the wife he wanted. What amazing reasons to kill people, like wow. John thought the pastor would understand his reasons for murdering his entire family. I mean, John was only trying to save his family from future struggles. He thought, well, instead of getting a job or coming clean to my family or literally anything else, I'm gonna murder my entire family because I don't wanna see them struggle. John also didn't complete suicide because he said suicide was an unforgivable sin. So that's very rich coming from a man who just committed murder. And if I recall, one of the Ten Commandments in a Christian Bible says, Thou shalt not kill. And even though this was in 1971, where there are photographs of everyone, police literally could not find one photo of John in the house. John had gone and cut his face from every photo he appeared in. Police also had zero photos of John in their records, so they didn't have a good description of what John looked like to go off of. The FBI found his car at the airport, but with no other evidence of where he had gone, the trail quickly went cold. There was no other shred of evidence or anything really for 18 years until John Walsh, the host of America's Most Wanted, ever heard of it, heard about the case and was determined to find John and get justice for the List family. And if you don't know, John Walsh got into the true crime world after his six-year-old son Adam was abducted from a Sears department store and found dead two weeks later. 
So Walsh used his son's death to try to help others who are in the same situation he was in. In his interest in the case, Walsh contacted forensic sculptor Frank Bender and his forensic psychologist friend Richard Walter in 1989 to create a bust of what John Liss would look like after 20 years. Bender had success in helping capture aging criminals and identify decomposed bodies through his sculptures. John wore spectacles back in the day, so they used that bit of information in creating the bust. The bust also had a receding hairline and sagging jaws. I'm not sure where they found photographs of John, but Bender and Walter used them to figure out how John would look after 18 years. So they must have found some pictures from maybe other family members in like North Carolina. And if you want more information, go read that book. On May 21st, 1989, Walsh aired an episode about John List and the famicide he committed in 1971 using the bus, which ended up airing in 22 million households. Tips began flooding in, and one tip came from a woman named Wanda Flannery from Richmond, Virginia, who thought the next-door neighbor Robert Clark looked just like the bus aired in the episode. Oddly, details from Robert's life mirrored John List. Robert was an accountant attended church religiously and wore the same spectacles as the bust. So that's what really nailed the coffin was the spectacles. With this enlightening information, authorities went to Robert, aka John's home, and spoke to his wife, Dolores Miller. John moved to Denver as Robert, a name John borrowed from someone he knew in college. And I think it's funny because the person he supposedly knew in college literally didn't know John. There, John found a job as the hotel clerk and eventually got a better job as an accountant for H&R Block. He joined the Lutheran Church where he ran a carpool for shut-in church members. In 1985, Robert and Dolores got married soon after meeting at the church and moved to Richmond, Virginia. With this information, John was arrested on June 1, 1989. John insisted his name was Robert Peter Clark until police compared his fingerprint to John List's military records. A psychiatrist diagnosed John with obsessive-compulsive personality disorder. At trial, John and his defense claimed he did what he did because he was under financial stress and had a concern for his family's spiritual well-being. John also stated he suffered from PTSD from his military service in World War II, which he absolutely could have, but that wasn't a good reason for murdering his family. In fact, I would argue that there isn't any good reason to murder your family. John's defense team also tried to claim that his confessional letter to his pastor was confidential to only the pastor and therefore inadmissible in court, which is absolute baloney. On April 12, 1990, John List was convicted of five counts of first-degree murder and was sentenced to five consecutive life terms. Being the delightful man John was, he kept appealing his convictions, citing all the reasons I listened before, and thanks to everyone's good judgment, John was kept in prison for 18 years before dying at the ripe age of 82. John died from pneumonia on March 21, 2008. After using the age progress bust on America's Most Wanted, John Walsh donated it to a forensic science exhibit at the National Museum of Crime and Punishment in Washington, D.C. That collection was then moved to the Alcatraz East Crime Museum in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. Several months after the List family murders, the Victorian mansion named Breeze Knoll burned down. No one knows the cause of the fire and a new house was replaced on the plot. And if you ask me, which you didn't, but here I am, I would never live in that house on that plot or even rebuild a house on the plot because it's haunted. And finally, ironically, there is a stained glass window John laid his family under after he murdered them. Turns out 
That stained glass window was an original Tiffany window and was worth $100,000 in the 1970s. That money could have easily taken care of John's debt or helped the family find a smaller house. And they could have even sold that big mansion. Been okay for a couple years, maybe. He could have done literally anything to obtain money without stealing from his mom and murdering his family. I think his mental illness and his pride really took hold and unfortunately led to him murdering his family. Maybe he didn't want his family to wonder where the window went or have anyone question why he was selling it. It literally doesn't make sense to me why he didn't at least try to sell anything in his huge house, especially the house itself, but like I said, his mental health was in the toilet. And that doesn't excuse murdering his family, but at least we can try to understand a little bit about the background of why he did it. Anyways, I hope you have a good rest of your day and stay safe out there, friends. Thank you for listening to Crime Cloud. If you would like to access my Instagram, go to at Crime Cloud Podcast. And for my Twitter, go to at Crime Cloud Pod. To find the blog, go to crimecloudpodcast.blog. To email suggestions or corrections, use crimecloudpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening and supporting the podcast.